This is from another Unitarian Universalist minister. Her name is Victoria Safford. She, uh, she works and lives in Minnesota. It's called Map of the Journey in Progress. Here is where I found my voice and chose to be brave. Here's a place where I forgave someone against my better judgment, and I survived that. And unexpectedly, amazingly, I became wiser. Here's where I was once forgiven, was ready for once in life to receive forgiveness and to be transformed. And I survived that also, and I lived to tell the tale. This is the place where I said, no, more loudly than I thought I ever could, and everybody stared. But I said no, loudly anyway, because I knew it must be said. And those staring settled down into harmless, ineffective grumbling. And over me, they had no power anymore. Here's a time, and here's another, where I laid down my fear and walked right on into it, right up to my neck, into that roiling water. Here's where cruelty taught me something. And here's where I was first astonished by gratuitous compassion and knew it for the miracle it was, the requirement it is. It was a trembling time. And here much later is where I returned the blessing clumsily. It wasn't hard, but it was unaccustomed. It cycled round, and as best I could, I sent it back on out. I passed the gift along. The circular motion round and round has no apparent end. Here's a place, a murky puddle, where I've stumbled more than once and I've fallen. I don't know yet what to learn there. On this site, I was outraged, and the rage sustains me still. It clarifies my seeing. Here's where something caught me. A warm breeze in late winter, birdsong in late summer, and here's where I was told that there was something wrong with my eyes, that I see the world strangely. And here's what I said, yes, I know, I walk in beauty. Here's where I began to look with my own eyes and listen with my own ears and sing my own song, shaky as it is. And here is where, as if by surgeon's knife, my heart was opened up. And here and here, and here. These are the landmarks of conversion. For those whom I've known for 36 to 48 years, those particular figures are from the time I arrived in Aspen 48 years ago to the time I left Aspen 36 years ago. Uh, <clears throat> kind of odd to see me. It's, it's odd to be here in the pulpit at the Aspen Chapel. It is just a little bit odd but wonderful and fantastic. And I <clears throat> am so thrilled to be here with Greg, who I, whom I have known for exactly that amount of time, actually. That, that would be the, the longer period of time. So when I arrived in Aspen on Labor Day of 1970 as a young folk singer, <laughs> I didn't know if I'd need these. I don't know if I'd do or not. As a young folk singer, I would not have predicted that I'd be here on July 8, 2018, in this pulpit but I wasn't predicting very much at the time. I came to sing in the glorious Rocky Mountains, so I did. One song at a time, one show at a time, one place to live at a time. 
I was dedicated to music, but what that looked like just unfolded in front of me. There was no master plan. But I might have missed a clue regarding my future in the pulpit. Folk singers preached. We sang about injustice, prejudice, poverty, war, and told you how to fix every one of those. And if it didn't work, we sang some more. If that didn't work, we sang louder. And at some point, many of us stopped preaching, thinking we might be done. Oh, gee. We were so wrong about that. We are not done. But I have a very hard time these days singing about the news. I'm aware, concerned, angry, scared, but I don't pretend to have anything new or different or enlightening to offer on that count. Much greater minds than mine are looking for answers for the best response to a world that often seems to be tilting dangerously. So I'm going to talk about a different slant on that. I'm considering what shapes our response to the world around us, how we as individuals have unplanned encounters throughout our lives that have a profound effect on our principles and on our spiritual ethical selves. Yogi Berra's classic line, when you come to a fork in the road, take it, which seems nonsensical on its surface, actually makes a lot of sense. We don't really know often what the next choice, we don't make the next choice consciously, but our life unfolds in front of us. Every fork in the road can lead to the next unexpected lesson, like listening to country radio and hearing Tim McGraw sing Humble and Kind. In matters of the spirit, I pretty much followed my heart as well, just as I did in music. I left the Catholic Church of my youth because, as a trusting kid, the priests and nuns were scary. And the rules were simple. One, you, yes, you, 10-year-old Steve Stapenhorst, you must be like Jesus. Number two, you can't be like Jesus. Jesus was God. Number three, don't ask questions. Religion involves mystery. Mysteries beg questions. Humanitarian and scientist Buckminster Fuller once said, most of my advances were by mistake. You uncover what is when you get rid of what isn't. We'll hear more from Bucky a little bit later. Now, there are many that leave the church that they were raised in, never want to step into another church, but religion, religious people continue to intrigue me. After years of visiting a variety of churches, I joined a Unitarian Universalist Church in New York City. And if your primary exposure to Unitarians comes from Garrison Keillor's years of quips on Prairie Home Companion, a very brief explanation. The Christian Unitarian movement began to be accepted in the late 1600s in Poland and Transylvania. Garrison may have missed some jokes about its birth. but And it was based on a belief that there was one God, that Jesus was a human being inspired by God, contrary to the Trinitarian view of God as three distinct people, all of which we call God, the the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Between that time, or before that time, rather, before the Protestant Reformation, those with Unitarian beliefs were often prosecuted. And the Universalist movement, beginning about 100 years later, believed that all souls spent eternity with God in heaven, that a loving God would never create hell. So there was universal salvation. Increasingly, as these movements grew in England and America, they became committed to the common truth in all faiths and less attached to the dogma of their history. 
They merged in 1961, and that was the birth of the Unitarian Universalists, which we can popularly call UUs. I have a tennis partner who wears a hat with the letters G-A-P, and during our first match years ago, I found out that it wasn't from the clothing store that it stood for God Answers Prayers. And of course, that led to a discussion of religion. Listening to me talk about my church, my born-again friend was incredulous and asked, how can you go to a church that tells you you don't have an afterlife in heaven? I said, George, I didn't tell you that at all. My church doesn't tell me that at all. I just believe that in my church. It's okay if I believe that. You use don't really have required beliefs or a lot of rules except to respect every person's beliefs as we engage in a responsible search for truth and meaning. Seems to me that that's exactly what goes on here at the Aspen Chapel with Nicholas Vesey, Greg Anderson, both exploring spirituality rather than dictating it, allowing everyone to find truth and meaning in their own way. Here in this room, you are not new to taking a broad view of religion. And I want to take you a little bit further out to the unexpected sources that are not considered religious in nature that can, in fact, end up being religious in the deepest possible way. Paraphrasing Nicholas, I hope, Nicholas, if you're watching, I hope this is accurate, experience is, in the middle of a holy, is being in the middle of a holy mystery and understanding is a result. And here's a quote from Nicholas. As he said, we are using understanding and experience to work out our place in the world. Couldn't agree more. In the 1960s, I was engaged in social work in Baltimore's inner city as a conscientious objector during the Vietnam War. I marched through the streets of Baltimore next to Catholic priests Philip Berrigan, Dan Berrigan. In the home of their friend and fellow Catholic artist Tom Lewis, I had my first Maryland crab feast. As giant pots of steam blue crabs were dumped on newspapers and a distinctly Baltimorean form of communion took place. <laughs> but newspapers under future crab feasts would have headlines with the names of the Berrigans, of Tom Lewis, and many others, as the Catonsville Nine, the Baltimore Four, the Harrisburg Seven, and more. Among other actions, they broke into local selective service offices and poured blood over personnel records which was representing the blood shed in the Vietnam War. Later on, they burned draft files with homemade napalm. They were committed to following the teachings of Jesus as they understood them. Very committed. Now, recently, the sign at the Sierra Madre United Methodist Church, just a few blocks from where I live, announced the coming Sunday sermon entitled, Not a Human Message. Personally, I need a human message. The church I left as a youth did not show much of a human face. I didn't know people like the Berrigans and Tom Lewis until many years later. And now Pope Francis has gone a long way toward humanizing that church to connecting the mystery of the faith with the reality of people's lives. Religion lives in our human relationships. In the way we live our lives, the way we treat each other, I'm responsible for what I believe, and I'm responsible for my actions. So without the promise of eternal joy in heaven, 
without the Ten Commandments and the rules that were given to me as a youth that I cannot bend, cannot vary from, what is my ultimate duty to myself and to others? It has been said, and not only by Garrison Keillor, that instead of the Ten Commandments, the Unitarians have ten suggestions. <laughs> he was right. <laughs> we ask questions, we search, we look for things, we, we uncover things. And I think there are many more than ten. Okay, you're wondering, how does my mom fit into this? All right. Nobody? Well, no. <laughs> She is the one who raised me Catholic. She promised her German-born Catholic mother that she'd raise her kids in the church, having married a non-practicing Lutheran. If she had married a practicing Lutheran, she would still have had to make that promise. But she gave each of us, two older brothers, me, my younger sister Ellen, the choice of continuing in that church or not after the rite of confirmation at age 12 or so. One by one, we chose not. When Ellen chose not to continue, my mom gave a big sigh of relief and said, I kept my promise, now I don't have to go to church anymore. <laughs> she may have even said, thank God I don't have to go to church anymore. I'm not sure of the details, but what a lesson in unexpected integrity and honesty from my mom. She really believed in living humbly and following the rules and taking what life gave you. She thought, pretty much that we should sit down and be quiet. Don't call attention to yourself. And yet, I followed my heart into music, performing publicly and frequently as even a teenager. And she loved it, absolutely loved it. She came to every show she could. She was proud of me, and I was, in fact, calling attention to myself. But when life offered her a choice, she kept all of the kindness and the compassion, the concern and love that truly reflected her heart, and she managed to let go of some of the ideas that didn't really fit anymore. When my mom was young, she loved to dance, not perform, just dance, dance joyfully. Much of her adult life brought a lot of pain and very little joy, and maybe she recognized when she saw me perform that she saw that joy again and was glad to see it. Through music in my late teens, I found myself working with a Protestant church. Now, the priests and nuns in my former life had told me that even setting foot in a Protestant church was a sin. But the people there practiced their religion with warmth and humanity. The minister, a bright guy who became a great friend, once said to me that he was sorry that I didn't accept Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior, but that I was a better Christian than many in his congregation. I had great respect for Matt, so that was an unexpected comment to a 19-year-old, giving me faith in myself as well as something to aspire to, pride and humility. Knowing Matt and the people at that church opened me up to walking through a whole lot of church doors that I wouldn't have otherwise. And then came my two years of social work, which I thought might lead to my real career since, of course, Music can't be a real career. My co-workers, all volunteers, were quite inspiring. Many found their joy tutoring kids, working with the families, getting to know the neighborhood characters in Baltimore's gritty inner city. I wanted to feel that way, to embrace the community, to feel that connection as most of our team did. I was disappointed 
with myself. I felt guilty. I felt confused. Social work, at least in that form, was not for me. That was clear. But I didn't feel good about it. Now, right at that moment in my life, don't even know how I happened to do it, I picked up The Fountainhead, Ayn Rand's first novel. Couldn't put it down. Stayed awake half the night often reading it. Here in this page-turner full of intrigue, double-dealing, sex, politics, and power was Howard Rourke, a brilliant, creative architect who was challenged to not do his best work because, because, well, his best work didn't really conform to the lowest common denominator that architects were supposed to perform to. And if he prevailed, the folks who created ordinary work aiming for acceptability rather than brilliance were unfairly passed over. When I told my mom I had read The Fountainhead and loved it, I can hear her voice to this day. Oh, Stephen, you don't believe that. My parents gave me very powerful moral grounding. So hearing that didn't feel good at all. But I had been stuck in my mom's view, feeling guilty because I wasn't satisfied just going along. In its purest form, I responded to Ayn Rand's message that I should make my own goals, that people are not all the same. Rand said you should not sacrifice yourself to others and not use others to further your own success. She once said, a creative man is, not motivated, is motivated by the desire to achieve, not by the desire to beat others. Some are better at what they do, and they should be rewarded, not expected to move aside in the name of fairness. If Ayn Rand had only stopped there. If you're familiar with her ideas, you're likely on my mom's side right now. As I read more of her writings where she detailed her philosophy, and even in her hugely successful novel, Atlas Shrugged, she showed the truly heartless way that she applied her ideas. I moved into my mom's camp as well. But a simple lesson I took from the fountainhead, the talents and skills are for us to use, that it benefits everyone if we each do our best, was something I needed to help me see how success and service, pride and compassion might all fit together. It helped me understand that I could have compassion without being in the trenches. My mom taught me humility. Howard Rourke, I guess, taught me pride. And from both the difference between sacrificing yourself to others and serving others. And then there's Buckminster Fuller. Bucky to everybody. Architect, scientist, inventor, designer, author, philosopher, humanitarian, and truly humble human being. When he was 32 years old, a young aspiring architect, he lost his job as head of an innovative building firm and didn't know how he'd support his wife and young child. Five years earlier, his first daughter had died at the age of four. Life was overwhelming, and that led him to thinking that suicide might be the best solution for himself and for his family. At that moment, as he told it many times, a voice said to him, You do not have the right to eliminate yourself. You do not belong to you. You belong to the universe. Your significance will remain forever obscure to you. But you may assume that you are fulfilling your role if you apply yourself to converting your experiences to the highest advantage of others. 
Now, when people hear voices, many of them are not quite as long as... All of them don't use such big words and long run-on sentences. However, it worked for Bucky because the rest of his life, he worked and lived in service to humankind. As a scientist, Bucky talked about the vastness of the universe and how, how we were so small in the cosmic sense. And then he turned it around to the extraordinary miracle of human life, how each of us has that capacity to create, to expand the boundaries of understanding, to live vivid and meaningful lives. The idea that we were both insignificant and ultimately magnificent made sense to me. Pride and humility, success and service, all part of a full and responsible life. A little uh, personal story here in the late... 70s, Tanglefoot, the band that Greg mentioned and uh, Jerry and Ellen and I were all a part of, and four others. We played at a club at a hotel in Minneapolis. There was a conference going on in the city. Bucky Fuller was a main speaker. And he was staying at our hotel. I heard him speak. Then I ran into him in the lobby. And I said, come to our show. Of course. He did. Of course. He sat in the front row. His focus was total. He was absolutely absorbed by what we did. It was surreal. Playing with him right in front of us and afterwards listening to his effusive praise, Buckminster Fuller's life was touched by our music, by my music. Pride and humility. One of my very brainy older brothers had tried to explain Bucky Fuller's ideas when we were both teenagers. Mostly didn't really sink in. My experience with him came through Werner Erhard and the S training. So if I lost you at Ayn Rand, now that I've added Werner Erhard, I'll just give you a second if you, and you can decide whether to stick with me. Okay, good, good. Thank you for staying. Yes, I did S. Yes, it changed my life. Yes, it was good. Werner's observations of human behavior, his brilliant package of psychology, philosophy, and human reality were, again, just what I needed when I encountered them. I watched both of those brainy ultra brothers I men mentioned. I watched both of them deal with devastating, life-killing mental issues and felt that if I ever needed counseling or therapy, I was cooked. It wasn't worth going on. I saw their lives. I thought, would I choose that? wasn't sure. After asked... I looked at therapy or any form of self-examination as a totally positive opportunity to grow and learn. It turns out that self-awareness is a good thing. And beyond the insights during the training, it opened me up to what I experienced from that moment on. To accept rather than judge. To see fear and doubt as legitimate and important feelings, but not let them stop me from moving on. To know that I counted pretty much as much as I thought I did. Werner Erhard, Bucky Fuller, both really saw the world in a similar way. The universe is vast and mysterious, but being open to experience will help us understand and accept our unique place in that universe. Nicholas again, we are using understanding and experience to work out our place in the world. Bucky and Werner both conveyed the message that each one of us, warts and all, is a whole creation, just what we are supposed to be. And all this stuff around us, that's just what it was meant to be as well. 
It's just easier to allow or create change if we start from where we are rather than fighting reality, thinking we have to be different before we can be whole. But for all the times I spent in ESC seminars, all the time I heard Werner Erhard speak, it's nothing I remember more clearly than a moment during a lecture when he paused answering a question and more or less throwing it off as an aside, he said, in the end it's all about service, but you're not going to get that yet anyway. Then he went on with his talk. Like my mom telling me I did not like Ayn Rand, to this day I can hear Werner's voice. In the end, it's all about service. And if I put those two voices together, I think the message is kind of the same. We learn from what we find along the way. Our spiritual, uh, spiritual selves grow from human experience. I am grateful for Matt Meyer, for Philip and Dan Berrigan, for Bucky, Werner, Ayn, and Mom, and so many others along the way. When I come to a fork in the road, I guess I'll just take it. And there's probably a Unitarian Universalist expedition somewhere doing some serious spiritual archaeology looking for more than ten questions. And I am confident they'll find it, and when I find out, I'll get back to you.